North Korea fires tactical short-range missiles in a recent missile test, and the American media has proclaimed this to be a major provocation testing the Biden administration. Donald Trump met twice with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in two summits, one in Singapore and the other in Hanoi, but those summits resulted in failure. What's next in U.S. policy towards North Korea? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, joined by host Brian Becker. If you enjoy this show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. We can do this with you, but not without you. Brian, today we're going to talk about the Democratic People's Republic of Korea or North Korea, and specifically about the relationship between the DPRK and the United States. Although there's a campaign of demonization in the American media and by American government officials against the People's Republic of China, this campaign pales in comparison with the ongoing demonization of North Korea, of the North Korean government, and specifically of the North Korean leadership. According to some of the most recent media reports, I'm looking at the New York Times, for instance, North Korea is once again embarked upon a path of international provocations saber-rattling, and threats against the peace and security of the people in the Pacific region, but against the people of the United States, and in fact, against the whole world. For instance, I just want to read this first paragraph from a New York Times article that just appeared. This is really how the issue is presented to the American people from today's New York Times. Quote, North Korea launched two short-range ballistic missiles off its east coast on Thursday in its most significant provocation against the United States under President Biden, officials said. South Korea confirmed that North Korea had launched two short-range missiles, adding that they were most likely ballistic missiles. Earlier in the day, the Prime Minister Suga of Japan was the first regional leader to announce that North Korea had resumed testing ballistic missiles in violation of UN resolutions. A senior U.S. official also confirmed that the projectiles were ballistic missiles. So, Brian, according to the New York Times, the North Korean government is on the warpath? Yes, of course, we should all be quaking in our boots, Nicole. And again, the American people are being led down the same path, the same path that they've been led down over decades, in fact, that North Korea represents and constitutes a great menace to the people of the Asia-Pacific region, a great menace to the people of South Korea, and in fact, a great menace to the people of the United States. Remember, in the first year of Donald Trump's administration, Before he decided to have negotiations and diplomacy with the DPRK, he had the gall to stand at the podium at the UN General Assembly and say that North Korea not only represented a grave threat, but he was prepared to, quote, totally annihilate North Korea. And that's very significant because, in fact, the United States at one time did totally annihilate North Korea during the Korean War between 1950 and 1953. The U.S. dropped so many bombs on North Korea that there was not one structure taller than one story still standing, and that was by the end of 1950 or perhaps the beginning of 1951. 
And the U.S. continued to bomb the country, continued to bomb the country all the way up until July 27th, 1953, when an armistice was signed. And the main complaint of American pilots during the last two years was that there was nothing left to bomb because everything had already been destroyed. Now, when you just know that reality and then hear the American rhetoric that North Korea is the great menace, there's just a couple other facts, Nicole, that I think people need to have in order to put this campaign against North Korea into perspective. North Korea has a military nuclear weapons program today. Yes, they have developed a nuclear weapons program. They left the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in 2002 after George W. Bush declared Iran, Iraq, and North Korea to be an axis of evil. And while Bush was preparing to invade the first spoke of the axis, that would be Iraq. And then he meant to take down Iran and certainly North Korea. North Korea said, as it was legally entitled to say, in the name of its own security, it was leaving the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, thus legally allowing it to gain nuclear weapons. And it said it needed to do that because the U.S. was menacing it. In other words, North Korea was going to go nuclear because they were afraid that George W. Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and the rest of the war hawks that had assumed the White House in Washington were coming at North Korea. And they developed a nuclear program. And now, yes, they have nuclear weapons. How many do they have? As of early 2020, according to the best estimates by international arms inspectors, North Korea has an arsenal of approximately 30 nuclear weapons and the sufficient production of visible material for six to seven nuclear weapons per year. Okay, so does that sound scary? Maybe. Let's look at the United States, North Korea's adversary. As of 2019, the U.S. has an inventory of how many nuclear warheads? Well, is it double the North Korean? The North Koreans have 30. Does the U.S. have 60? No, the United States has 6,185 nuclear warheads. The United States has thousands of intercontinental ballistic missiles, medium-range missiles, tactical missiles on which to carry these nuclear warheads. It has Trident submarines. One Trident submarine with one launch of its nuclear arsenal could destroy every city, big and small, in North Korea in one strike. Moreover, the real U.S. military budget is so far greater than North Korea's. I mean, when you look at the numbers, it's staggering. What's the North Korean military budget, the great menace posed by North Korea? Well, North Korea spends, according to the most recent estimates, about $4 billion each year on defense. Does that sound like a lot? Well, $4 billion sounds like a big number. It's the equivalent of the New York City Police Department budget. Yes, the great threat posed by the North Korean military is such that North Korea spends as much as the New York City Police Department each year. And what about the United States? The United States spends $750 or $760 billion officially for defense, as it's called, for the military, but that's only the Department of Defense budget. The real number for what the U.S. spends is about 
$900 billion or perhaps even a trillion dollars each year. In addition to the Defense Department budget of $750 billion, there's another $250 billion that's spent with the Department of Veterans Affairs, the National Nuclear Security Administration, the Department of Energy, the FBI Cybersecurity, and the Department of Justice. In total, the U.S. spends a trillion dollars every year on defense. The U.S. has nuclear weapons all over, all over the world, including all around North Korea. So when you look at the way the American media presents this issue to the American people, that because North Korea happened to test two missiles, short-range missiles into the sea, that this is a major provocation. Meanwhile, I'm sure in the last week, the United States has done intercontinental ballistic missile tests, intermediate-range missile tests, short-range tactical missile tests. Why is it, everyone, that when the United States, the only country in the world that used nuclear weapons, the only country that actually used them, and it used them deliberately in a premeditated way against non-military cities, the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945, as a basically a test run to see what the casualty levels would look like, a single bomb in one city in Hiroshima killed about 100,000 immediately and led to generations of radiation poisoning. And a similar number died the next week when the U.S. bombed Nagasaki. This was when the Japanese government clearly was on the eve of or preparing to surrender nonetheless. So here you have the facts and you have to look at the facts and the facts make it clear that North Korea doesn't pose a menace to the United States. It's not trying to start the next war with the United States. It is, on the other hand, well aware that the United States intends to carry out regime change against North Korea, as it did in Iraq, as it liked to do in Iran, as it did in Libya, as it tried to do in Syria, as it's doing in Venezuela. And the North Koreans are saying, look, that's not going to happen. We don't have the ability to wage a massive war against the United States, nor is that our intention. We can't impose economic sanctions on the United States, nor is that our intention. But if you think you can come in and roll over us, just remember that we're not going to lay down. We're not going to be passive. And in fact, the United States policymakers should remember the Korean War, because in that war, even though it was fought to a stalemate, and an armistice was signed on July 27, 1953, the North Koreans were prepared to fight and fight and fight. They were prepared to fight just as the Vietnamese were prepared to fight until the United States would have been you know, finally forced to come back. But the North Koreans had a lot of pressure imposed on them in 1953. One, because China wanted the war to end. The Soviet Union wanted the war to end. Of course, China was just recovering from a 27-year-long civil war, so it's understandable that they didn't want to keep fighting in Korea, and the Chinese had sent more than a million volunteer soldiers, as they were called, to fight against the Americans in the Korean War. And the Soviets had lost 27 million in World War II. More than anything, the Soviets, too, wanted peace. So they finally... I believe, put pressure on the North Koreans to agree to an armistice. An armistice was agreed. By the way, by the way, 
in Michio Kaku's book, To Win a Nuclear War, which uses declassified documents 30 years later, it made it clear, and the Soviets and the Chinese knew this, that the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Pentagon, by unanimous vote, had decided in May 1953 that if there was not the signing of an armistice agreement within a few weeks or a few months, the U.S. was going to begin using atomic nuclear weapons against North Korea and against the People's Republic of China. That was a decision taken, unanimously decided by the Joint Chiefs that was undoubtedly communicated to China and the Soviet Union. At the end of the day, the North Koreans who were fighting to liberate their country and reunify the Korean Peninsula, just as the Vietnamese under Ho Chi Minh were determined to reunify divided Vietnam, they signed an armistice agreement, but I don't think they were happy about it. They wanted to fight until final liberation. The American government would well remember this because it's clear that even though North Korea is much smaller, North Korea doesn't have massive weapons arsenal, including nuclear weapons arsenal. It's very, very small in comparison to the United States. As I said, its military budget is the size of the New York City Police Department budget. The North Koreans are prepared to fight. And I think the sending of these tactical missiles into the sea in the last week was not an attempt to start a war. It was an attempt to draw attention to the fact that the status quo where they are being economically strangled and really literally almost strangled to death for many North Koreans, it's an unacceptable status quo and that they are insisting that something change and that something that needs to change is that the United States come back to the negotiating table, not for war, but for what the North Koreans really want, which is a lasting peace in North Korea and on the Korean Peninsula. Well, let's talk about that, because Donald Trump agreed to meet with the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, and no U.S. president had ever met with any leader of North Korea. They had two summit meetings, like I mentioned at the top of the episode. One was in Singapore. The other was in Hanoi. The meeting in Hanoi, listeners will remember, ended in a sudden collapse on its second day. So what about Joe Biden? We have a new president in office. And you know what's the expected policy that he might have toward the DPRK? Will he follow up on those summits and meet with Kim Jong-un? Well, Nicole, there are different signs, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Anthony Blinken, back before the presidential election was completed back in September, gave an interview in Newsweek, and he was asked about North Korea. And there was a lot of anticipation at that time that Blinken might be a high cabinet official. And of course, today he is the Secretary of State. He was just meeting with the Chinese in Alaska, a very odious performance by Anthony Blinken, where he invited the Chinese to, to come to the United States, to Alaska for a meeting. And as the guest arrived, the guest was treated with a a vitriolic attack by Blinken and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. But Blinken, you know, back in September, when asked about North Korea and what if Biden were to be elected and if he were to be, he, Blinken, were to be in the new cabinet, what would be the U.S. policy towards North Korea? And he said something that was interesting. Certainly, I'm sure the North Koreans paid attention to it. He said, well, there were some things that Trump did that were good. He sort of reshuffled the deck in terms of U.S.-North Korean relations, but he failed because he insisted 
that North Korea completely denuclearize. And the reality is that North Korea is now a nuclear power and, you know, they're not going to give up their nuclear weapons and a deal, a new arrangement, a negotiated settlement on the Korean peninsula will not be the consequence of North Korea giving up its nuclear weapons. I mean, I'm saying more than he said, but that was the basic message in the Newsweek interview. So you would think then that Blinken was going back to an earlier diplomatic position that the United States accepted all the way back in the Clinton administration. And we'll talk about that some in our history of this relationship, where it looked like the US and North Korea might come to an agreement a normalization agreement, especially at the end of the Clinton administration, 1999-2000, Admiral William Perry went to North Korea, and then there was a thaw in North-South relations. There was the historic summit on June 15th between Kim Dae-jung, the leader of South Korea, and Kim Jong-il, the leader of North Korea. They pledged, you know, a a thaw in North-South relations. But what the U.S. accepted at that time is negotiations could be taken on an incremental, step-by-step, confidence-building sort of platform or foundation, meaning that if the North Koreans make a concession to the United States, something the United States wants, the United States will do something North Korea wants. And there's something North Korea has wanted is the lifting or partial lifting of sanctions. So Blinken was in this Newsweek interview, suggesting that, in fact, what the United States might do, and it's just a suggestion, but what it might do is go back and adopt that earlier formula. And that was the formula that I think North Korea thought was happening at the Singapore summit in 2018, but collapsed the Hanoi summit in 2019. So Blinken came back and said, or suggested, this maybe is the formula. So. We don't know. We don't know what's actually coming. The North Koreans are ready to talk. That was clear by the two summits. It was clear by the fact that Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, met with Moon Jae-in at the DMZ, the demilitarized zone at the 38th parallel that divides North and South Korea. Also, North Korea allowed North Korean troops and South Korean troops to step over the DMZ. They literally physically stepped over it and had like a chummy peace talk between the soldiers who are normally pointing machine guns at each other. All of these things North Korea did, and they did a lot more than that, in fact, were signals that the North Koreans are willing to talk. So the North Koreans are waiting for Biden to see whether he's willing to talk. And I think sending the test missiles short range, not long range, not missiles that could hit the American mainland or anything like that, We're a sign that the DPRK wants to talk, but the DPRK is becoming impatient because if they think that they are like not a priority for Biden, or if Biden is going to slip into what Obama adopted as the Obama doctrine, which was what was called strategic patience, which that's just a euphemism for not talking to North Korea and simply trying to strangle them with economic sanctions, the North Koreans are not going to accept that. So If Biden doesn't make a move, if Biden doesn't make a move towards negotiations, maybe there are some moves going on behind the scenes, we don't know. But if there's nothing palpable, concrete, a real step forward, I believe that North Korea will end the moratorium on nuclear weapons tests and end the moratorium on ICBM. Those are the intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of reaching the mainland of the United States. 
they will go back and say, okay, if we're getting nothing out of the moratorium, if we're getting nothing by putting our own testing on hold while the U.S. continues to test and modernize its own arsenal, conventional and nuclear, we're going to start up again. And in fact, the United States has to worry about that because, and this is the big part of the calculation, it's we're looking at a geostrategic puzzle in the Asia Pacific and in the North Pacific. And this is extremely important for U.S. imperialist policymakers during the era of the Asia pivot, because if North Korea achieves an even greater capacity with nuclear weapons and long-range missiles, such that they could actually carry out a strike on American troops that are stationed in Okinawa or other parts of Japan, the Japanese government will have a tremendous pressure from the nationalist, most militarist wing of the establishment to achieve nuclear weapons itself. It won't be acceptable to Japanese imperialism to allow its former colonial subject, that would be North Korea, and previously it was North and South Korea. The Japanese militarists are like, no, we can't allow the former colonized people to have nuclear weapons that could, you know, if used, destroy us without us having nuclear weapons ourselves. So that will lead to the complete end of Article 9 in the Japanese constitution. That will lead to the rearmament of Japan and the acquisition of nuclear weapons by Japan. And the United States doesn't want Japan to have nuclear weapons. The United States wants Japan to be a major imperial partner, but a junior partner to U.S. imperialism and not an independent imperialist rival to the United States. And so the United States partly wants to make sure that North Korea doesn't have a stronger nuclear capacity out of worry about the geostrategic ripple effect, and especially in terms of its impact on Japan. Brian, from the past few years, including the summits we just talked about, we can see that the DPRK was willing to meet with the U.S. and meet with the U.S. side, and they even offered substantial concessions. Talk about that. Talk about what actually happened. What do you think the DPRK actually wants out of negotiations with the United States? Well, what the North Koreans want is clear. I think let's take a moment and read what the Singapore Declaration says. The Singapore Declaration was signed by Trump personally and Kim Jong-un at the end of their couple-day summit in June 12, 2018. Here's what it says. Convinced that the establishment of new U.S. DPRK relations will contribute to the peace and prosperity of the Korean Peninsula and of the world, and recognizing that mutual confidence building can promote the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, President Trump and Chairman Kim Jong-un state the following. One, the United States and the DPRK commit to establish new U.S. DPRK relations in accordance with the desire of the peoples of the two countries for peace and prosperity. So note, everyone, point number one is not about denuclearization. Point number two, the United States and the DPRK will join their efforts to build a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. So point number two of the Singapore Declaration, not talking about nuclear weapons. Point number three, reaffirming the April 27, 2018 Panmunjom Declaration 
the DPRK commits to work toward complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And point number four, the United States and the DPRK commit to recovering POW MIA remains, that's missing soldiers from the Korean War, including the immediate repatriation of those already identified. So that's what North Korea wants. North Korea is saying, let's have a new relationship. If we establish a new relationship, as it says, point number one, in accordance with the desire of the peoples of the two countries for peace and prosperity, and two, if the U.S. and the DPRK join their efforts to build a lasting and stable peace regime, meaning a peace treaty, meaning a guarantee of security, meaning the end of war. And then, number three, North Korea commits to work toward complete denuclearization. That doesn't mean that North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons right now. First must be these other preconditions for the North Koreans before they give up nuclear weapons. They're not going to disarm themselves, and they know this in terms of what happened with the Saddam Hussein regime. It disarmed itself under UN weapons inspectors, and then the U.S. invaded and destroyed the country and destroyed the government. So the North Koreans were like, no, we're not doing that. And we're not going to be like Libya, where we just give up all of our powerful weapons, and then the American government using NATO allies comes and bombs us to smithereens. The North Koreans are just not going to do that. But they said in that declaration, if we have new relations, if we have peace, then then we can work towards denuclearization. Important for our audience to remember that the United States had more than 50 nuclear weapons in the Korean Peninsula up until the 1980s. Remember that the United States brought nuclear weapons to the Korean Peninsula. The United States brought them and the United States carries out war exercises twice a year or has for decades that simulate the use of such weapons, nuclear weapons in the destruction, the annihilation of North Korea and including the invasion of North Korea. So the U.S. introduced nuclear weapons. It said it was for regime change. It wanted to reunify the Korean Peninsula under the leadership of the South Korean regime. And really that means under the domination of the United States, which still has 30,000 U.S. troops in South Korea. And the North Koreans are like, no, if we have a peace, a real new peace regime, then we can start to begin the process of denuclearization. Now, what happened in Hanoi? The Hanoi summit was the follow-up to the Singapore summit. So just keep these dates in mind. The Singapore summit is June 12th, 2018. I had the opportunity to be there at the summit, and I was covering the summit for our radio show, Loud and Clear. And I also had the opportunity to go to Hanoi, also covering that summit for our show. And I have to say, when we got to Hanoi and we were setting up and we were, luckily, we were with the international press rather than rather than the U.S. press corps, which was, you know, those reporters were dripping with chauvinism and racism. So we didn't have to hang out with them. But that's an aside. I don't mean to digress, but they were truly awful. But anyway, there was a a high spirits at the beginning of the summit. Like the day before, I was talking to reporters throughout who are coming from mainly Asian countries. They were like, so excited. This like, this is going to happen. Peace is finally coming to the Korean Peninsula. That night, on the first night, 
there was an announcement by Trump that there was going to be a major declaration the next day and that this is going to be historic and that there would be a meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un and their entourage, the respective entourages, the second morning. Then there'd be a lunch between Trump and Kim Jong-un and then this big announcement right after lunch. So everybody was like super hyped. I'm looking at a CNBC report, which I think is very accurate because you know we were all sitting there in a sort of stunned state when instead of this announcement coming, the lunch was canceled between Kim Jong-un and Trump. The North Koreans didn't say anything. Then they announced that Kim Jong-un was leaving. There wasn't going to be a follow-up meeting with Trump. And we were wondering, like, what happened? And there was a lot of speculation about what happened. Well, here's a CNBC report, which I think is extremely important and informative about why peace was not achieved at the second summit. I'm going to read to you. On the day that their talks in Hanoi collapsed last month, U.S. President Donald Trump handed North Korean leader Kim Jong-un a piece of paper that included a blunt call for the transfer of Pyongyang's nuclear weapons and bomb fuel to the United States. Trump gave Kim both Korean and English language versions of the U.S. position at Hanoi's Metropole Hotel on February 28th. It was the first time that Trump himself had explicitly defined what he meant by denuclearization. A lunch between the two leaders was canceled the same day, while neither side presented a complete account of why the summit collapsed. The document may help explain it. The document's existence was first mentioned by White House National Security Advisor John Bolton in a television interview he gave after the two-day summit. Bolton did not disclose in those interviews the pivotal U.S. expectation contained in the document that North Korea should transfer its nuclear weapons and physical material to the United States. The document appeared to represent Bolton's long-held and hard-line, quote, Libya model of denuclearization that North Korea had rejected repeatedly. It probably would have been seen by Kim, this is CNBC, as insulting and provocative. Well, there's no probably there. Again, the idea of North Korea handing over its weapons, all of its weapons to the United States without a peace treaty, without a peace regime, without a normalization of relations, without even better relations, while the two sides are still technically at war, North Korea was now going to give America all of its weapons. Now, John Bolton first proposed this, by the way, back in 2004, he was George W. Bush's hard right, super militarist, super hawk ambassador to the United Nations. This is Bolton's line. And it's very interesting that at the first day of the Hanoi summit, the first day, Bolton was there, but it was Pompeo, Trump, and Stephen Begun, an envoy from Trump to the North Korea for the purpose of the negotiations, who were sitting at the table. And Begun's policy, as announced at a speech at Stanford University the month before the talks, accepted the idea that there should be incremental, step-by-step, confidence-building negotiations with North Korea, not that North Korea should be denuclearized or it should be disarmed before other things happened. 
On the second day, Begun was not at the front of the table. He was sitting behind John Bolton. John Bolton had moved to the front. I think clearly Pompeo and Bolton conspired. They made sure that Begun was you know, put to the back bench, so to speak. And they convinced Trump, who actually is a novice in global politics, that if Trump offered the North Koreans the grand bargain, which was write out on a piece of paper in English and in Korean, that North Korea would not only disarm, but give all of its weapons to America and all of its visible nuclear material to the Americans. And then the United States would entertain the idea of lifting all sanctions on North Korea. So Trump was convinced, I believe, by Bolton and Pompeo that this was the grand deal. So Trump hands a piece of paper in the middle of the second day to Kim Jong-un and says, basically, surrender, surrender, hand over all of your weapons. And in return, you'll have a great, great deal. Believe me, Donald Trump, I'm the grand deal maker. And the North Koreans look at this thing and they're like, what? We took the train from Pyongyang to Hanoi, a 60-hour train ride. That's what how Kim Jong-un traveled in order to be told when we got here that we were supposed to hand over all of our weapons in exchange for the possible lifting of economic sanctions. So clearly, Trump, a novice in foreign policy, someone who I believe actually wanted the deal, perhaps for his own reasons, he wanted the Nobel Peace Prize or something like that. He was easily subverted by these bureaucrats who, you know, who know how to deal, how to wheel and deal, Pompeo and Bolton, both of them really opposed to any deal with the North Koreans. But so in the past were their counterparts in the Democratic Party who were who assumed the same positions in the foreign policy establishment. That's why the second summit failed. That's why it was collapsed. It was collapsed on purpose by the American side, by John Bolton, by Mike Pompeo. And as a consequence, we are exactly where we were a long time ago. Brian, we've talked a little bit about this already today, but I really want to drive home this point that the American people are being taught to hate and fear North Korea. I mean, I read from the New York Times article at the very beginning of this episode and really goes to show that. And you have maintained, a lot of people on the left have maintained for a long time that this is completely bogus, that this is completely a lie, that the North Koreans actually want peace and not war, and that I think most importantly, they are the ones on the receiving end of aggression rather than delivering it themselves. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's really important to understand how Korea became divided. And Nicole, I want to close on this point because we're going to do a second part to this show. We're going to talk about the internal politics inside North Korea so that we have a better and our audience has a better understanding of what's motivating North Korean leadership, what's motivating their politics, some of the debates and controversies over the years. We're going to talk about that in our next segment. And we'll also focus on North Korea's relationship with China and with Russia and previously with the Soviet Union. So there's going to be a lot more to talk about. But regarding this point, which is so important, you know, Korea was divided in 1945. Two young members of the U.S. State Department took a magic marker. They talked for about 30 minutes and they drew with a magic marker a line at the 38th parallel of the Korean Peninsula. And they said, this will be the point of demarcation 
that the wartime allies, the United States, the Soviet Union, and Britain, who fought together against Germany, and then at the end of the wars, the Soviet Union also declared war against Japan just in August 1945, right before the war ended, that they were going to make points of division. So there would be zones of occupation by the wartime allies following the defeat of their enemies. So Korea, which was a Japanese colony, was to be divided at the 38th parallel. The Soviets would occupy the northern part of the country. The South would be occupied by the Americans. And that occupation would last until 1948. And then both sides would withdraw. And then there would be democratic elections. And then there would be a unified Korea under Korean leadership. That was the promise, right? That's how Korea was divided in 1945. Same with Vietnam. Vietnam was also divided between North and South Vietnam. Same with Germany, East Germany, West Germany. So the allies, the victors of World War II, divided different parts of what had been previously enemy territory for zones of occupation until the situation normalized. So what happened in 1945 and 46 and 47 was that the government in North Korea, the you know de facto government, was led by Kim Il-sung and the Workers' Party of Korea. In the case of South Korea, the Americans flew in Sigmund Rhee to become the dictator of South Korea, and American troops occupied the country. Sigmund Rhee had lived for decades in the United States. He was an administrator and teacher at Princeton University. He became the leader of South Korea. And the people who he chose to be his government were the Koreans in South Korea who had collaborated with the Japanese colonialists. I'm not making this up. That's who it was. It was the former Japanese colonial apparatus with this American, well, Sigmund Rhee was Korean, but had been living in America for decades. They created the South Korean regime starting in 1945. During the 1945 period, to 1948, the Americans with Sigmund Rhee carried out a campaign of terror against South Koreans who were looking towards Kim Il-sung and the government in North Korea, because that government, unlike the South Korean government that had collaborated with the Japanese, the government in North Korea had been guerrilla fighters against Japanese colonialism in Korea and also in China. And so Korean patriots, Korean nationalists, Korean workers, Korean peasants, Korean socialists, they looked to the North. And what happened as this reign of terror was conducted against the pro-North people in the South, the conditions, the struggle between the North and the South heated up. This, by the way, is exactly how the Vietnam War really began following the end of French colonialism. The French were defeated at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954. There was the Geneva Conference that divided the country. And, you know, there were supposed to be elections that would reunify the country. And then the Americans realized that Ho Chi Minh, the leader of the Communist Party of Vietnam, would be elected as the national president of a now unified Vietnam because the communists were actually fighting against the colonialists. They had been arms in hand fighting for national liberation while the South Vietnamese government was basically a puppet force, didn't fight at all. 
And so what happened is basically a civil war was breaking out in the southern part of Korea. And in 1948, the American troops left. In 1948, the Soviets left. And this civil war in the southern part of Korea and between North and South Korea and those two governments became more and more intense. Both sides were crossing the 38th parallel. Units of the South Korean military defected and became part of the North Korean military. Probably some North Koreans defected and went to South Korea. So it was a brittle point of confrontation. Again, the country that had been unified for thousands of years, a unified culture for thousands of years, suddenly divided in 1945. And then the war broke out. And there was lots of arguments, who fired the first shot? The Americans said North Korea was the aggressor. The reality was, like in Vietnam, these two sides represented two different class forces. The socialists, the communists represented socialism and communism. They said they were speaking for and fighting for workers and peasants. The government in South Korea, on the contrary, fighting for well, for international capital and for the United States, and certainly for older elite forces within the South Korean society. So the war breaks out. Within three days after the start of the war, three days, the North Korean military had been so successful, and they were welcomed as liberators by big parts of the South Korean population, especially the poor, the peasants, etc. Within three days, they were almost at the southern tip of South Korea. In other words, they were days away from completely liberating or unifying the country. When the United States introduced a resolution at the Security Council of the United Nations, which the Soviets were boycotting at that time, the Soviets had veto at the United Nations Security Council, they could veto any resolution, but they were boycotting the UN at that time because the US refused to seat Mao Zedong's government, the People's Republic of China, as the rightful, legitimate voice of the Chinese people in the Security Council. So in an act of solidarity, the Soviets boycotted. So the U.S. went in, had a resolution rammed through the United Nations where the U.N. declared war basically against North Korea. And the U.S. used that to organize a coalition of 26 capitalist countries to invade Korea. And that happened around June 28, 1950. Now, the war, as I said, it ended in a stalemate. It ended with an armistice on July 27, 1953. The U.S. had pushed all the way up to the Yalu River, which is the river, the border between North Korea and China. But the Chinese came pouring across that border, uh, surprised attacked the United States. More than a million Chinese fought. They fought with North Korean units. And they repelled the United States and drove the U.S. back below the 38th parallel. And that's where the war stalemated. Now, the Korean War was very unpopular in the United States, very unpopular. When Truman left office on January 1953, right before the war ended, his approval rating was like, it was as low as George W. Bush's was when he left because of the Iraq debacle you know, in 2008. People hated the Korean War. They didn't know what it was for. But the Korean War had some very sort of important elements that we should just mention as we sort of wrap up here. One is that the Korean War was unlike World War I or World War II. It was unlike it in the sense that all of the imperialist countries united together 
against North Korea. And North Korea's allies were the socialist government in China and the socialist government in the Soviet Union and the newly formed socialist governments in Eastern Europe. So instead of World War I and World War II, where mainly it was provoked by a struggle between different imperialist countries over who was going to control what colonies, this was a war between capitalism on one side and socialism on the other. And all of the countries that had socialist governments united behind North Korea and all of the governments that were capitalists united behind the United States. So what we have in Korea is really a war between two governments and a war between nations fighting as proxies. But I believe, and what we believe, is that this was really a war between classes. One class, the capitalist class, retained power in South Korea, and the socialist the working class or the peasants who took control over different countries at the end of World War II, again, the Soviet Union was created at the end of World War I, this war was fought not only as a war between nations, but as a class war with very strong ideological overpinning. So it was presented to the American people as a war against global communism. It wasn't just a war against the North Korean army. It was a war against China. It was a war against the Soviet Union. It was a war against Marxism. And that's when the fierce repression, the fiercest repression was visited upon the left inside the United States. Right after the war started, the Rosenbergs, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, two rank and file workers, members of the Communist Party USA, part of the peace movement against the Korean War, were indicted for having given nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union and the judge, Judge Kaufman, at their trial said, you're the reason tens of thousands of Americans died in Korea, because if the Soviet Union didn't have the nuclear weapon, which they had because you gave it to them, you spied on America's nuclear program and gave the Soviets the nuclear secrets, and thus the Soviets had nuclear weapons, and thus the Soviets were confident and strong, as opposed to being meek and fearful of this weapon that they did not have in 1945. You are the ones responsible for all the dead Americans in Korea. That's what he said at the sentencing, and he sentenced them to death, and they were executed. They were executed with the electric chair. They had two small kids. They were activists in the New York City movement, in the political left and socialist and peace movement. They were executed. So this anti-communism at home and this fierce repression at home associated with the Korean War, which was considered by the New York Times and the Western capitalist media as the beginning of the global war between capitalism and communism taking place on the terrain of the Korean Peninsula, that meant it became almost impossible to speak out against the war in Korea. The repression was so great. And that's why Korea became known as the Forgotten War, unlike the Vietnam War, which is so similar, a divided country, the U.S. at war trying to stop a socialist government from unifying the country. Very, very similar between Vietnam and North Korea. And all Americans knew about Vietnam. Millions came into the streets to protest. But because it was the beginning of the so-called Cold War, which was not cold in Korea, four million Koreans 
died who would not have otherwise died, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, because of that war, and most of them civilians, most of them poor people. Because of the fierce repression, there was not an anti-war movement, and because there was not an anti-war movement, it became the forgotten war. And so when the armistice was signed, the American people were like, oh my God, finally it's over. 36, 40,000 Americans died there, and hundreds of thousands were wounded. Finally, it's over. But it was forgotten because it was just like, let's forget about it. And we didn't know that much about it anyway, because there was no anti-war movement telling us the truth. It was only the American media that became sort of the source of information. And then the other reason it was the forgotten war, the other reason is that the American government, the occupation force in South Korea, allowed journalists from 19 countries to independently cover the war for the first six months. And what they covered was amazing. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in our next episode about North Korea. What they covered was amazing because what they showed and demonstrated was that all over South Korea, peasants and poor people who were considered either unreliable or straight out supporters of North Korea were being rounded up in the thousands and slaughtered, executed. I mean, the stories are amazing. And the reports were so vivid and powerful about the extreme fascist-like repression against the people in South Korea by the Americans with their counterparts in the South Korean military. And so in January 1951, the U.S. military decided no more reports from media from reporters from Korea, subject to criminal penalty or expulsion. All reporters were muzzled and they had to give each of their stories to the Pentagon, to the generals who would then review them and censor them. That's another reason it became a forgotten war. The reporters were muzzled, so they stopped telling the truth about the great criminality of the American and other foreign nation occupation. The other story they told, and this is so important then and so important now, is that the Americans and the other non-Koreans talked about the Koreans in South Korea with the G word, which is the approximate word for the N word. They described all Koreans with this racist epithet. So these reports about the extreme racism and repression and suppression by military forces led by the United States in South Korea, had this compelling impact on public opinion in the countries that were at war with Korea. And that was helping to facilitate anti-war sentiment. As people learned the truth about it, when it wasn't a forgotten war, when people knew of the war, they were angry about the war. But that's why the Pentagon and the military decided to end all of that and subject all reporting from South Korea to being filtered through military censors. And again, a principal reason why this war became the Forgotten War. I think this is so important, and it's part of the truth-telling that needs to happen. I want to recommend to our listeners that they can look up a few documents, a few books, if you want to learn more about the Forgotten War so that you know what happened, so it's not forgotten, at least for you. Certainly, I would recommend the book, The Korean War, A History by Bruce Cummins. He is a U.S. American scholar. That's a fairly small book. There's a larger book, 
It's in two volumes. It's called The Origins of the Korean War, Volume 2 in particular, also written by Bruce Cummins. Volume 2, it's a big book. It's 920 pages. But if you want to know more about how the Korean War started and really how the Cold War started, there's no better book. And I also want to suggest to people that they become aware of the Pulitzer Prize winning reporting of Song Hun Cho, Charles Hanley, and Martha Mendoza. They won the Pulitzer Prize in the year 2000 for a series of reports they did about the Forgotten War in 1999. The works that won the Pulitzer, I'll just read them very quickly. The War's Hidden Chapter, XGI's Tell of Killing Korean Refugees. Korean villagers recall death and terror beneath a bridge. Timeline of a forgotten war. Veterans, other incidents of refugees killed by GIs during the Korean retreat, and more. These are extremely important documents. They came out in 1999. In 2000, the authors won the Pulitzer Prize. I, Nicole, was a co-director of an international project called the Korea International War Crimes Tribunal. We held it at Riverside Church in 2001. We brought Koreans from South Korea, Koreans from Japan, and other overseas Koreans. I had gone to South Korea and to North Korea twice that year. I took video of civilians who had suffered at the hands of American and other foreign occupying troops in South Korea. I did video of North Koreans. I went throughout North Korea and I took video of North Korean workers and people who lived in farm communities, people who were very, very old and who were quite young at the time that they were subjected to all kinds of criminal actions during the Korean War. We brought that video back from South Korea. We brought people from South Korea and overseas Koreans from Japan and elsewhere. The North Koreans who we interviewed, we asked for visas so that they could come and give testimony as civilians. They weren't military. They weren't political people. The State Department denied their visa, so we had to present video testimony at this Korea International War Crimes Tribunal. We prepared a major report. Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General, was one of many very leading figures where we evaluated the Korean War the Forgotten War, and how the American and other occupying forces committed so many crimes. These are resources that people can access for yourself. In our next segment of this show, of the Socialist Program, The Real Story, that we'll bring you next Thursday, we're going to finish up on this episode that deals with North Korea. We're going to go into the politics inside of North Korea, the evolution of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and its different political shapes and iterations during the past 70 years. This is extremely important because, again, as long as you talk about North Korea as the hermit kingdom or you demonize it with the most racist stereotyping, as long as you do things to keep yourself ignorant or in the case of the U.S. media, they willfully try to keep the American people in a state of ignorance, you don't really understand what's going on in North Korea or 
the thinking, the conceptions, the plans, the calculations, and the desires of people in North Korea, including the people who are in charge of the North Korean government. We're going to come back and talk about these different features and facets and characteristics of politics in North Korea. That'll help us understand what's driving the government of North Korea. We'll also want to talk about what's going on inside South Korea, because there is a continuing and I would say growing movement that wants to have reconciliation between the two Koreas that looks for rapprochement and possibly, I'd say inevitably, the reunification of the Korean people. These are the big topics that we'll cover in the next episode of The Real Story. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 